Hello. Hello. Sounds a bit funny in here, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like our usual No, booth. should we explain why that is? I think we should. It's actually, you'd think it was because of a global pandemic, meaning that we're in an underground bunker. But it's not that, it's because we couldn't get access to the proper booth today, so we're in a concrete room elsewhere than usual recording this, and hence the sound quality is a little bit different. In many ways, we're a victim of our own success. We are, we kept telling people how to do podcasts, and now they're all doing them, so we've lost our booth. For now, for now. But I mean, I think, like, much like the pandemic, I think... It's a fad that will pass. Yeah, it'll, and, it'll blow uh, over. We'll forget it? that it's really cool making podcasts and we'll get our boot yeah. back. But if you want to spend the next bit of time not thinking about coronavirus and just enjoying a bit of chat about satire, you're in the right place. Nom, nom, nom. Oh, can you not say nom, nom, nom? Why? I hate nom, nom, nom. And also, it's stupid, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean something, it's onomatopoeic. Well, something being an onomatopoeic doesn't actually automatically mean that it has meaning, does it? But also, it isn't even onomatopoeic, is it? It's not, not properly. Well, an onomatopoeia is a sound that sounds like a sound, and that's what nom nom A sound nom that nom sounds is. like a sound? It's a word that sounds like the sound it's describing, like nom nom nom. Well, but honestly, right, being really completely, utterly honest, when you eat, do you go nom nom nom? I don't, but... Have you heard anybody that does? I haven't, but I have read on Urban Dictionary that saying the words nom nom nom, quote, represents a sound made when someone is eating or chewing something and really enjoying it. Well, we all agree, don't we, by kind of common consensus that when someone says nom nom nom, they're broadly indicating the idea of eating. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, people who are actually eating in true real life don't make any sounds that are remotely like nom. I suppose if we're being really honest, the no sound involved in the mastication process does sound like nom, either no. said once or indeed thrice. So what is happening, as you suggested, is that as a community of readers and listeners, we've created a context for that. Yeah, yeah, we all have to sounds. agree that when somebody says nom, 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 they're, they're sort of indicating that they're eating something and also that they're an annoying person. But mainly because of that context, we can imagine them in, in, enthusiastically eating food that they enjoy. Yeah. And we don't have to think about what the sound of someone enthusiastically enjoying food would actually sound like, which would probably be disgusting. Yeah, it would be horrible. Do you want to try and do that? Not at all. No. So okay. with that context in mind, surely me saying nom 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 a few minutes ago was the perfect way to signal to our listeners that I am eating something and really enjoying it without having to do the sound effects we just discussed. Well, I suppose it's a convenient shorthand, isn't it? But I still maintain that saying nom 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 is stupid and affected. And in an irritating turn of events, it did seem to become a practice to actually start saying nom 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 whilst eating food to convey that they were enjoying it. So it's like saying lol instead of actually laughing or like laughing loads and then going ah lol when you finish which or, would be stupid so we, to, we just shouldn't yeah. do it like if you fell on the floor and started rolling around laughing and then said raffle 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 yeah, that'd be yeah well, you would you've convinced me that have you that ever seen anybody stupid. fall on the floor and roll around laughing only once were they listening to this podcast they were listening to me do an impression the man laughed so much he fell over yeah. don't believe you and anyway also i think the other salient point here is no one really has said nom 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 since about 2009 have they so if you say nom 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 you're a fool don't do it okay i've got it Okay, but also though, we'll put aside the fact you made that stupid noise. What are you eating? What is that? Another lovely meal from Shropshire Farm Foods? It isn't actually this mm. time. It's a uh, Deliveroo, and I didn't get given it for free. I had to buy it. Oh really? Because didn't you just have some complimentary Shropshire Farm Foods for lunch? 
Uh, no, because our sponsors never send me free things, do they? They always send them to you. Uh, I don't know what it is about me, um, but I always get left out. I feel like hardly a day goes by without you having to see, see me back into an email exchange. That's not what happens. However, I'm just going to suggest that we pause here a moment. Is that all right with yeah, you? Yes, fine. Pause yeah, here yeah, for yeah, a moment, because yeah. I just wanted to make the point. Since we interviewed Janie Godley last month, our listener figures have significantly gone up. I was just noticing this. And so I'm a bit concerned that people who maybe haven't been listening from the beginning might not realise how self-referential and satirical everything we just said was and that we maybe should just kind of pause and explain and unpack some of that just in case there are new listeners who need to come into our loop. Okay, but wouldn't that be not funny to explain why we, what the jokes meant? I'm sure we can make it funny. I would defend it on the grounds that it's uh, important context. I just, I just want people to be able to get as much as they can from this. Okay, can I yeah, help them? Yeah, context. Can I help them to understand why it's funny? Yeah, okay. Yeah. The, the context is important. So what was the first in-joke then? Was it when you referred to Shropshire farm foods? I would say it was before that, actually. I think um, the whole idea of one of us be eating something at the start of the episode comes from a joke that we did in Season 2, Episode 1, and then we repeated almost word for word in Season 2, Episode 2, which was supposed to satirise that often slightly awkward sponsorship you get in podcasts after they become mildly successful. And when I say mildly successful... Obviously, I mean, still massively more successful than we are. So you get those kind of forced conversations about Deliveroo, don't you, in uh, My Dad Wrote a Porno. Mm. And then there is a kind of satirical take on that in Dear Joan and Jerrica about uh, HelloFresh, which kind of sidesteps that awkwardness of product placement by making it into a, a recurring joke. Although we sort of started doing that first, didn't we? But um, I think the fact they're doing it as well just means it's a very good idea to do that joke. It does, but it's funny. We did do it first. It, we did do it first, and it's funnier when we do it, because we don't actually even have any sponsorship. No, yet. and we never will, will we? And I'm sure that is not, not going to happen. So we're kind of satirising the foolish notion that we'd ever be big enough to get sponsors, when at present we've only had 10,000 listens, an average of 78 listens on the day of release, and listeners in the UK, Australia, and America. But also we're not profit-making. No, that's an extra layer on the joke, isn't it? And we're not. So it reminds everyone that this podcast is just a platform for research dissemination. It's a pathway, if you will, to impact, mm. isn't it? So if people listen in and tell us that they're aware and mm. they change their life, that is payment enough for me. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a okay. modest woman. No, that's yeah. fair enough. And then the next Easter egg, that is the Shropshire Farm Foods gag, isn't it? Shropshire Farm Foods don't make Easter eggs. They make delicious home-cooked meals delivered to the comfort of your own home or podcast studio. Studio? Well, or recording cupboard, if you're lucky, yeah. or room that you've hired in Degray for half an hour, if you're really unlucky. Um, yeah, but uh, Shropshire Farm Foods make delicious home-cooked food that you can enjoy, and also they're not real. We made them up for a joke. It's yes. a fictional home delivery food company. In the original cut, we were naming a real home delivery food company, which you might be able to work out. <laughs> um, but then we chickened out of actually naming them and just recorded the word Shropshire over the original word, which was, of course... Oh, well, that's not, that's not, that's not. Well, OK, yeah. And then the final bit of that joke was the stuff about how no one ever sends you free stuff or includes you in podcast correspondence generally, be that by email or be that by Twitter. Yes, and regular listeners will also recognise 
this as a recurring observation, which is in fact a comical inversion of what actually happens, which is that I, Adam, am constantly addressed as though I run this entire podcast all by myself, even though both of our names are clearly in the title of the podcast, and it's run entirely collaboratively, entirely. It's strange, isn't it? And we'll, we'll keep doing that joke mm. because women's labour is erased all the time, every day. And that's the end of the footnote on all our intentional references in this opening skit. Is it funny now? Or has all of that context killed us dead? I mean, you ridicule the idea of a context-free word, but you're worried about a word being taken out of context. Yeah. No, if you take a word out of context and put it in another context, then surely for a moment, it's got no context. Well, while it's in transit. Yeah. Yeah, and if you could grab it at that point and see what it tasted like, then you would know if you could have a context-free word or not. Well, here's perhaps more food for doubt. What about what happens to words when you're asleep? Yeah. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What are we talking about? I think the idea of the possibility of a contextless word, but I got a bit confused there. But I mean, I, I was just accusing you of ridiculing the idea of a context-free word, but to the best of my knowledge, you've never done that. No, I haven't. And you know what? I know what's happened here and why I'm so confused. And we've both mutually got confused. We've confused our words for the words of Chris Morris and Stuart Lee as spoken in the fourth episode of the third season of Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle. And from the moment when you said, I mean, you ridicule the idea of a context-free word, mm-hmm. that's what was happening. We were just saying their words. Of course. And that was that That's episode. the context for that. Yeah. Right, yeah, that's the context for that. And that was the episode that was all about the relationship between comedy, context and offence. That's the one, yep. Well, isn't that useful? Since that's precisely what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. How important is context to satire? And more specifically, how how do you curate satire that originally existed in a different context? And speaking of context, should we, at this point, several minutes later than we usually do, but Mm. extraordinary times, shall we just tell our listeners who we are and what it is that they are listening to? Yes, okay, so that was the voice of Dr Joe Waugh, senior lecturer in 19th century literature at York St John University. And that was the voice that was, that was the voice of Dr Adam James Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century literature, also at York St John University. And together we direct an ongoing trans-historical, interdisciplinary, international project called Satire, Deaths, Births, Legacies. And as part of that, in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research, we co-host this ongoing trans-historical, interdisciplinary podcast in which we talk about satire. The title of the podcast is called Smith and Wall Talk About Satire. Yes, and today we're going to be talking about satire with Dr Sarah Burnage, who is Assistant Curator at Fairfax House, a spectacular Georgian townhouse in the city of York, which in 2019 hosted an exhibition titled Savage Satire from the Pen of James Gilroy, and in this year we'll be hosting another exhibition called... Wait, 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 wait. What... What is it? I think the rest of that sentence might actually be a big bit of news. A big, really? Yes. Okay, well, let's hear it. Play the jingle. It's Adam and Joe's big bit, bit of, of news. news. Well, we've got a big bit of good news and uh, a big bit of sad news as well, sad haven't we, Joe? Bit of bad yeah, news, but, haven't we? Yeah. But first of all, a quick bit of a quick bit of just stupid news. Yes. Yeah. We just had to change rooms and record the podcast somewhere else, so we're doing that now. Um, our dedication yeah. is impressive. So uh, bit, we'll do the good news first, shall we? Yeah. The What's the good of, news? The big bit of good news is that Joe and I have actually been working with Rachel Wallace and the staff at Fairfax House. Mm-hmm. Um, to develop a new exhibition. So we've we've basically been consulting on this, haven't we? Mm. But uh, it's a big exhibition which is called Keeping Up With The Georgians, Satire Celebrity and Society. Well, It's it's an exhibition of James Gilray uh, caricatures, but also they've they've gone to great lengths to try and make it more about satire 
in make general. it contemporary and interesting yeah. and exciting. And think um, about the, the satirical legacies of James Gilray yeah. the, and where satire has been born and reborn and, and all sorts of things. And as part of that, they'll be featuring the podcast, won't they? Yes. Playing in different rooms. And we were really looking forward to um, helping them to launch that exhibition also at the reopening of Fairfax House for the summer season on the 27th of March as part of the York Literature Festival. And now we come to the sad bit of news. We did. Of course, you'll remember from previous episodes that launch event was also going to be the launch of the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire, YRUSOS. We've made the decision, it was a difficult decision, but I think it's the right decision Mm. to postpone. Yeah, just yeah. because it doesn't seem like a good time to have lots of people all together in a, a small space. Yeah. Um, let's let's wait until we can do it and think about it and engage with it properly. And, and also we've we've had to postpone our caricature workshop as part of yes. that as well because we thought it would be not a good idea to be all, all, all handling the same art materials and yeah. didn't want to put anyone in jeopardy. So we, we postponed the whole thing, including the launch of our satire unit. But yeah. uh, satire isn't dead, it's just postponed. Yes, so that's that. <laughs> Sad bit of news. So let's talk about satire and context then. Do you think context yeah. is important to satire? Yes, I do think context is important to satire. Was, that was a good chat, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, no, seriously, it is important, obviously, isn't it? Because something something satirical where the, the particular context has now moved on or mm. changed or is inaccessible to the person engaging or trying to engage with yeah. satire, it doesn't, it's absolutely impossible, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's not necessarily satire, but even just watching an episode of The Simpsons yeah. from 20 years ago often works on two levels because you've got the American context, which we're not necessarily privy to as mm. British viewers, many of whom are children, but also temporally it's out of place now, so you might not know any of these celebrities are they're being parodied. Yeah, so satire, does, do you think it dates quicker than other forms? I think it possibly does. And that, I mean, that's a challenge. It's something we talked to Sarah about. That's a challenge for me as an 18th centuryist is that so many of the references in the great works of satire by people like Alexander Pope are so topical and specific. Mm. It's the case we don't know who these people are or even what they're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you've got to footnote it to death, it loses something, mm. doesn't it? I mean, Stuart Lee plays with that, doesn't he, in his books where he, d- he does copious footnotes which quite deliberately dominate the page in a lot of instances. Yeah. And I suppose he's almost pushing to its limits the idea mm. that you're going to have to just have this explained to you mm. first and then you'll understand why that's interesting or funny. And I think when he does that, he is he's really pushing it, isn't mm. he, to, to see how far you'll put up with it for. Yeah, I mean... Also, with satire, a lot of really effective, visceral satire, part of it comes from that good confusion of not knowing if it's real or not sometimes, yeah. or like not knowing to how earnestly it was expressed. Whereas if you are aware that it was satire or it has to be mm. explained to you, that might be might rob it of some of its power. Yeah, without context, satire is very vulnerable to misrepresentation, isn't it? It is, yeah. So you could say that it's fake news, you could say it's propaganda. Again, I know we talk about Twitter all the time, but this is this happens a lot, isn't it, where something is uttered in, in some ironic way mm. or, or with a specific product target in mind and then is read extraordinarily literally and oftentimes exaggerated to a position beyond the satirical statement seemingly in order for a lot of people to then performatively get offended by it yeah yeah almost yeah. as if they like doing that isn't it sometimes yeah. and i think also it can be dangerously misrepresented but also it, it stops being funny doesn't it if, if you don't have the context so you mm-hmm. have to have the 
context. But the moment of having the context explained to you kind of ruins it, doesn't yeah, it? So yeah. the context has to be obvious, accessible and relevant mm. in order for satire to be effective and also to be funny if you desire it to be funny. I mean, if you have to pause to think about why mm. you're laughing at something as well, that can rob it of some of its power. But but it's a useful exercise to do like post-mortem in a way to see if something genuinely was or wasn't satirical because it's something mm. we've talked about before, is it? Where yeah. when things are just offensive or harassing and are retrospectively categorised as satire, but when you look at it, they're not. They're not adhering to the right criteria. You're on about Boris Johnson again. I was thinking about yeah. Boris Johnson, yeah. Frankie Boyle spent a lot of time doing this, didn't he? Saying, saying, and Ricky Gervais does it a bit as well. Sometimes it's satire, sometimes it's not. And you've got to do a post-mortem to find out. What about jokes from not even the 18th century, but jokes from like the 70s or even the 90s, you know, where comic sensibilities are different what do we mm. do about that I mean do we do we ban them do we always present them with a hefty frame narrative it's like here's an episode of Terry and June Terry and June yeah <laughs> Terry and June my mum's always watching Terry and June whenever I go home on great British comedy classics is Terry and June satire it's not no but just but, uh, but the jokes in it don't, yeah. don't land at all no or carry on films so what do we do with them in a bin and they're <laughs> dreadful the first time around and, yeah. and they're not satire anyway yeah I think it's often the temptation might be to say well that joke doesn't work anymore because we wouldn't talk in that way about mm. a particular group of people even Englishmen Irishmen Scotsmen jokes that we wouldn't do that or we don't talk about women in that way and perhaps it's superficially easy to say comedy changes because social values change and things are deemed to be unacceptable. I don't actually think it is just that. I think Mm. comedy moves quickly. So things like, I mean, like knock-knock jokes had their moment... But it's hard to imagine somebody laughing uproariously at a knock-knock joke now, mm. isn't it? And yeah. it's not because it was like, knock-knock, who's there? An Irishman, oh, you're stupid, yeah. is it? No. They weren't even that good. It's just that things move on. But as soon as a joke becomes as formulaic and familiar, perhaps as mm. well, it loses some of its impact. And I suppose that is possibly where from an academic perspective a lot of these texts get interesting where comedic or satirical text the comedy moves on but then that is like insect phrasing in amber isn't it it's like mm. for, it becomes a cultural text yeah so, so actually you could reconstruct a lot more than just how the joke is working from what the joke was and learn about that yeah. society in a way that's not going to be particularly funny necessarily but it could be tremendously but it useful be good for you yeah 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 well, what's certainly interesting. the oldest funny thing do you think uh, what the first ever funny thing What's the longest to go thing that you find funny? Well, like in my life or in like all of society and culture? <laughs> society and culture. Society and culture, not in your life. <laughs> I don't know if you say. saying Oh, when the... I hurt my knee when I was seven, that was um, it, yeah. Right, I'm actually going to rephrase the question there. What is the oldest satire you think still lands, still works, and perhaps is still funny? Oh, well, like the, a lot of Juvenalian and Horatian satire from the ancient times is still applicable because the, the general way that they frame the jokes and the issues they're upset about. Well, they're, they're always skewing hypocrisy. So, yeah. that, so that that remains relevant to this day, I'd say. Yeah. That's interesting, because I was going to say probably Peter Cook. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit <laughs> yeah. more recent. Before, before pre-PC, yeah. everything is now no longer good. After that, probably less of it than you think will be when you go back to it, because you mm. expect it to be a bit better than it is. But after that, it still has a, a chance of still being good. So anything after Peter Cook is potentially got the potential to be <laughs> yeah, good. That's, okay, that's the rule. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you know? I'm just not sure. Do you want to hear what the what the jokes were like in the 18th century? That's where I've been trying to lead us because it's in the script. Yeah. Adam's 18th century observation corner. 
Okay, so I've actually got a few jokes here from a book that I found in some research from 1793. Okay. Um, so the end of the 18th century, very nearly the 19th century. I thought Good, we might that's like better. That. Yeah. Um, and it's called Joe Miller's Jests, or to give it its full title, Joe Miller's Jests being a collection of the most brilliant jests, the politest repartees, the most elegant bon mots, and the most pleasant short stories in the English language. That is quite the claim, isn't it? It is. So let's, do you want to hear one? Yeah, I want to hear something pleasant, elegant, polite and brilliant okay so dr tadlow who was a very fat man happened to go thump 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 with his great legs through a street in oxford where some paviors had been at work What's in the midst of july so they're fixing a road basically they're road, road okay. workers yeah they're, pavers, they're we might pa- call yeah. them today pavers, in the modern yeah. world yeah. yeah 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 so the paviors are working dr yeah. tadlow comes down he's a very fat man thump 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 goes great legs in the midst of july the fellows immediately laid down their rammers it was a rammer a tool for pavers. is it like a hammer like we were I think, think so, yeah, 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 for, for doing the pavier. Some sort of tool for, for ramming yeah, yeah. pavier-ing That's stones. Right. Yeah. yeah, so they put their pavier tools down. Oh, God bless you, master, cries one of them. It was very kind of you to come this way. It saves us a great deal of trouble in this hot weather. Very good. I think my, my immediate comment on that is there's far too much detail. It clearly takes 200 years to get that down to the point where it's something more like your Dr. Tadlow is so fat when he goes for a walk, the pavers don't have to... Even then, you, it still needs work. Yeah. You need something that's much quicker and punchier that a fat person would enable some other people to stop doing. But my favourite thing about it is the phrase, he went, what was it? He went thump, thump, thump with his great legs. It says, it's such a weird and surreal description of <laughs> someone walking along. Thump, thump, thump with his great legs through a street. I like phrasing that as a fat person walking as thump, thump, thumping with their great legs. Yeah. But it needs some it needs some work, doesn't it? Tell it me does. another joke. It does. One of the four said gentlemen, as was his custom. What four said gentlemen? Well, assume that there's a bit more. We to just it. started. Yeah. So there's this is just how it, okay, begins. it right. just begins. The gentleman, as was his custom, preaching most exceedingly dull to a congregation not used to him. Many of them sulk out of the church one after the other before the sermon was even ended. Truly, said a gentleman present, this learned doctor has made a very moving discourse. Okay, right. Again, it's too much setup, isn't it? And that's it would be funny if you said it in the moment that everybody was sneaking out of the sermon and you said well that was a whole new meaning to a moving discourse mm. but it doesn't work with that great big long setup does you've it be, you've got to be there do you think or, yeah I think yeah. you probably have got to be there or not be there that's the point of the joke isn't it a famous teacher of arithmetic who had long been married without being able to get his wife with child once said to her madam your husband is an excellent arithmetician yes she replied only he cannot multiply well I can't imagine you would have that conversation in that context <laughs> I mean, this is a very odd setup, isn't it? Where yeah. he refers to himself in the third person only in order to to kind of remind her that he's very good at maths, and mm. and she refers to what is presumably a deeply traumatic, mm. repeated inability to become pregnant yeah. with with a bit of wordplay. Mm. It just doesn't land, does it? A lady's age happening to be questioned, she affirmed she was but forty, and called upon a gentleman that was in company for his opinion. Cousin, she said, "Do you believe I am in the right?" when I say I am but 40. I ought not to dispute it, madam, replied he, for I have heard you say it these last 10 years. Oh, very good. No, it's not. I mean, it's not funny, but I'm also not sure if it's any less funny than a lot of jokes you'd see now. Oh, 40 again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A country... This is the last one, then. A country farmer going across his grounds in the dusk of evening spied a young fellow and a lady very busy near a five-bar gate in one of his fields. And calling to them to know what they were about, said the young man, No harm, farmer. We are only going to prop a gate. 
Oh, that is... It's more elaborate, isn't it? They've worked harder with that one. Somebody's noticed that propagate sounds like propping a gate and then they've worked quite hard to build a story in which someone might conceivably make that pun. I don't think you would. So these people are having sex in a field and the farmer shouts across the field, what are you about? And he's like, oh, I know what I could say here because I've just noticed... There's a gate there, isn't there? Yeah. It's got one, actually, there's one bonus one. Okay. It's, it's under the heading library jokes. Library so, jokes, so it should be okay. Good for yeah. A nobleman, having chosen a very illiterate person for his library keeper... Why did he do one, that? I don't know. Stupid, isn't it? One said of him, it was like having a prostitute kept by a eunuch. I'm just, I'm trying to figure that out. Well, the, the, I mean, so he's he's hired a really stupid person to look after his library. Yeah, the books are of no value to the illiterate person. The way that a prostitute would be of no value to a eunuch. Yeah, I think that's rude to prostitutes, rude to eunuchs. And also, just instead of making stupid jokes about it, just hire somebody who can do the job the first time around. Get you shit together yeah 18th century corner (laughs) done adam's 18th century observation corner well i'm very glad to be out of that unfunny misogynistic body shaming excessively wordy tedious little corner more from that (laughs) more from that (laughs) corner next time (laughs) i'm sure yeah i expect so but i think it's about time we talk to someone else now Mm -hmm. to stop us being so boring yeah yeah it's time to speak to our guest dr sarah burnish from fairfax house and this is the first time we've reviewed someone on site isn't it yeah so back in the summer we took the mic over to fairfax house didn't we we interviewed sarah there yeah let's go back in time and i think we'll probably need to provide some context for some of the the things we talk about mm. back in the summer because the world is a different place now. The summer Thanks of to... 2019. Okay, Sarah. So thank you very much for talking to us uh, for our first ever on location interview. First of all, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about Fairfax House and what it is that you do here? Okay, so Fairfax House is a Georgian townhouse based in the centre of York and it once belonged to a family called the Fairfaxes. Um, who in about 1760 decided to buy the house and it was their townhouse, it was their party house. We spent an enormous amount of money decorating it and kind of restructuring it. So we've got ceilings by Giuseppe Cortese, who's an Italian stuccoist, and the architect's John Carr, so we've got this amazing interior space. And the Fairfaxes had a castle outside of Gilling, so they would come to York for the season. So they would go to the races, the assembly rooms. So we always talk about it a little bit like being a party house. And my role here is, so I look after the collections and I help curate the exhibition with a team of people. It's not really satire related, but this seems like too good an opportunity given how many people listen to the podcast who are sort of academics but also interested in culture and heritage. So how did you end up doing that? So I did a PhD in History of Art, um, which focused on the 18th century, and then worked for art galleries and the National Trust, and then I've kind of ended up here, been here for the last four years, and I do a really varied programme of exhibitions, so anything from satire to costume, we did one on Georgian entertainments, really kind of weird and wonderful stuff we did here to kind of accompany the house. So one of those exhibitions most recently was the Savage Satire exhibition that obviously we'd really like to talk about today. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about? So uh, so we were really aware of the political situation in Britain at this point in time, so kind of Brexit was going off and you know there's all kind of financial crisis and all the things and actually there were so many parallels with Gilray's work from the kind of 1790s through to about 1810, particularly in the kind of the war period. Um, and we thought it was too good an opportunity to miss, to not kind of draw out some of those parallels. We found it trickier, actually, to draw out some of the parallels, because obviously Brexit is such a divisive issue. Mm-hmm. We decided not to use that in any of our kind of promotional material, but kind of loosely draw parallels between the past and the present. Um, and we know a private collector who has an absolutely incredible collection of Gilways, and he was so generous 
and kind of said, take your pick. So we took our pick of some of Gilray's really brilliant political satires and produced an exhibition out of it. So it was really straightforward, actually, and came from a really current moment in political affairs. And so if you were avoiding, well, not avoiding, but you didn't speak explicitly to the Brexit parallels, what were the parallels that you did use? A lot of it is taking this out of politicians. Mm-hmm. So he loves to do that, and he's ruthless. <laughs> and actually, lots of kind of modern satirists also kind of regularly reference Gilray's in their mm-hmm. work. So he's quite well known in the satir- visual satire circles. So it made sense for him to be the person that we would focus on and to build an exhibition around. So who, um, did you get a sense of who was coming to the satire exhibition and who was enjoying it or how people were responding to it? It was a really mixed group. So we had the super enthusiasts, so people who absolutely loved Gilray, who were travelling from you know, other parts of the country, phoning in advance to check how we got a catalogue kind of really excited about the works of Gilray, through to members of the public who would have never engaged with Gilray before. And actually, I think they found some of the images quite challenging because they are visually really complex. But some of them are really immediate jokes. So actually, there was something for everyone. But it's a really kind of mixed group. We always talk about at Fairfax House, we get people who are described as inquiring minds. So people who know a little bit and want to learn more. But actually, I think our spectrum of visitors is much broader than that. Mm. And people basically really like the pictures with bums in them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kind of, they were the popular ones that people would kind of laugh at, things like that. So yeah, really, really broad spectrum of people who hopefully learnt a little bit about satire and Gilray in particular. It's funny you know, that in these divisive times, it seems that everyone is happy to laugh at politicians. I yeah, going to say bums. And, <laughs> yeah. and bums. But yeah. that's, that's not a problem for anyone. Well, they're fair, I think they're fair, fair game. They're fair game now and they're fair game. I mean, I was, um, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg in mm. yeah. reclining on the sofa. Immediately on Twitter, there's a whole load of kind of satirical gifs and memes yeah. that are making art historical references. So it's like it's alive today. So I think people get it. They mm. get yeah. kind of satire from the 18th century because they can see the parallels. Think, yeah. yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it? We talk about satire and targets and stuff. And effective satire, we've been told by many of our guests, and we've read about it, it has to be punching up and if you're making fun of a politician you can't not be punching up there doesn't seem to be any satire of a politician where everyone's like well that's not fair do they yes yeah, so you've had lots of exhibitions here uh, with the savage satire one and the gilroy material you mentioned that some of it is more challenging more difficult to engage with it's not all bums what are the particular challenges and what do you have to do when you're exhibiting satire that's maybe different from in other exhibitions? I think part of the problem comes with some of the images that relate to a particular political moment which will have a long history and background that we're unaware of in this crisis moment mm. and Gilray he produced these images really quickly so something would happen in Parliament that was controversial the next day he would produce an image which would then be sold in Hannah Humphrey's shop so it's, it's got an immediacy to it but with that immediacy goes a complex set of understandings about what caused that political situation so to describe that to visitors mm. in a short snappy accessible way is really really difficult because they might not get the references and you have to explain quite a lot in order to get them to a point where they would understand the images. On the other hand, he produced some images which are immediately accessible. So there is a nice mixture, but I think I think that's the thing I found hardest was getting some of the really kind of complex political points he was trying to make into a 200-word label that people could understand. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't necessarily know the background to most of these political events as well. It's another interesting parallel actually isn't it because you, you know things are changing on a really fast and regular basis and he's satirising them as quickly as they're happening and it's all appearing immediately. Mm. I think I think for Gilray as well like he I think he was aware of that which is why he produces these two types of images so some are incredibly detailed and would take a little bit longer so they may reflect a kind of uh, I don't know something like the Regency crisis would pop up again and again and it has kind of a longer appeal but these very immediate moments in politics he does rush out quickly and it's interesting who buys them because they're quite expensive 
you would get quite wealthy individuals who could afford the Gilrays, but then there's rip-off copies that would be made and distributed, and politics moves really quickly. Mm-hmm. That's why, actually, today something like Twitter is so good, because yeah. you know, you've got that immediacy and it's accessible to everybody, and everybody can contribute to the satire of it. Listening to you talking there reminds me of you know, when I'm teaching Rape of the Lock or something. So it is so rich, and it is so funny and effective. Once you've <coughs> rebuilt the context, you've recognised all the motifs, you think about it in the context of Pope and in the context of the 18th century society, on a good week, you might get two seminars where you can unpack that. But your guests, you know, the visitors to Fairfax, are, what do you think, they've maybe got like two or three minutes per print? Yeah, if that. It's really interesting. Dwell time really varies. Dwell so you, time. Like I mentioned kind of that, the enthusiasts, mm. they've all spent hours and they'll kind of love looking at all the detail because you know, their iconography is kind of really rich in them. And another visitor will just walk past them and enjoy it and very quickly move on. I think you have to accept that you're never going to be able to inform everybody about every single image. Um, and actually, there's real pleasure in just looking at Gilray's prints from a visual perspective. But aesthetically, mm. they're beautiful. They're really incredible works of art. So I think you can view them on many levels. But yeah, it's quite depressing if you've spent ages <laughs> researching and writing a label and everyone's like, oh, I'm not going to read that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's where the bums come in handy. It's where well. yeah, it's always been good bum. Politician's bum, you sorted. Do you have a favourite, Gilray? I do. So from the last exhibition, is mm. one called Toadstool Upon a Dunkill, which is about Pitt um, and his sycophancy towards the royal family. And so he's represented as a kind of toadstool on a pile of royal crap, <laughs> growing, he's thriving on kind of royal excrement. So, like, for me... It's a really accessible image. It's visually really crunchy, but it tells you an awful lot about Pitt's sycophancy, kind of the royal crisis at the time. You get quite a lot of information really quickly in a really spunky little image. I mm. like it. And also, this one's greatly satirised by modern modern artists as well, because it's so famous, it's used again and again, so you can see it reused as an art historical reference. So, this was a dedicated satire exhibition. Has other bits and bobs of satire popped up in other exhibitions at Fairfax? Yeah, we really regularly use like Gilray's in particular, but Rollinson's as well, just because they're so good at visually commenting on what's happening in the period. For example, at the moment we've got a fashion exhibition, and then as now, fashion was ridiculed and seen as over the top and outrageous. So we've got a lovely series of prints that mocks women who spend absolutely hours getting ready for a party, but also their ridiculous dresses, which reveal too much. Yeah, so he, because he's such a good social commenter, he's so relevant to so many of our exhibitions that we do use him really regularly. It's a great way to tell a story visually rather than through writing it down. Have you got any funny stories about satire exhibitions? Have <laughs> 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 been anything where you thought, should we not put that out? And you have put it out anyway. It's really hard, I think. So we, we did an exhibition called Georgian Entertainment where we covered the full gamut of Georgian entertainment. And part of that was looking at brothels, which was a vibrant part of Georgian culture. So we had all kind of wonderful things from a, a little box that contained the pubic hair of the Prince of Wales's lover to an ivory dildo that was found in a monastery on the side of a sofa. Almost we wanted people to be more shocked than they were. But I think possibly because they're historical objects, people go, oh, take a more academic view of them. I'm always a bit sad if people aren't kind of outraged. I think people see it in a different way. They see it as an object, as a historical object, rather than something to take offence at. And it's always tempting to push the boundaries. You mentioned at the start there that the the Savage Satire exhibition was partly inspired by what was happening in politics now. But do you think 18th century satire and satire more generally is in some ways still relevant and important today, and if so, why? Big question, that. I think because I come from a visual side of things, for me, we live in a really visual age, more so than ever in the 18th century. Our access to images is incredible compared to what was in the past. And I think opportunities for satire are just... so. There's so many more opportunities for it today, and people accept it more readily, and you can be really pretty biting. 
Um, so I think it's really relevant today. And I think the fact that modern satirists who are working in an artistic medium constantly reference people like Gilray means that they're constantly looking back. So the relevance of the 18th century continues to play into modern visual discourses about satire and some of the satirists who wrote for the major papers, they really often reference Gilray or Rawlinson. So I think, yeah, it's totally relevant. There's loads of scope to do more. Gilray's not dead then. Gilray's still being used and drawn on and referenced in such satire as exists in the contemporary moment. What about satire itself? What do you think might be the future of satire? I think the only way a nation can stay sane in a moment like this is through satire. I think it helps. <laughs> I think it's, it's often a peculiarly British thing. I think the future of satire... I, th- I think you almost need to broaden your expectations of what satire is to include transitory things that pop up in Twitter. We talk, I mean, they'll be lost in time, but actually yeah. a way of kind of recording those immediate responses would be like brilliant to feature historians in terms of understanding kind of the moment, but you fear that they'll get lost. So maybe broadening the canon to think about all the other things that are satirical that include satire. It's true. There's a, there's a danger that things will be brilliantly funny and incisive, but because they're on Twitter, they'll be lost forever. Thank, thank you, Sarah. That, thank you for making the time to see us and for welcoming us into Fairfax House, where we are on location right yeah. now. Thank yeah, thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure, pleasure. Oh, I really enjoyed talking to Sarah today. I enjoyed it talking to Sarah back when it was September as well yeah <laughs> and I feel like that gave us a lot of useful context yeah. for the podcast but also for the forthcoming exhibition at Fairfax House on satire yeah. and celebrity the art of James Gilray which will soon. be coming a little later than anticipated mm. but soon isn't it funny as well how like back when we recorded that the world did seem quite broken yeah but now I look get... back on that yeah. as a beautiful yeah. innocent well, time it seems now like that was I could I could cope with that mm. I mean there was a, an article I was reading this morning in the conversation you it was the conversation in South Africa mm-hmm. about the various ways in which people are using comedy and satire they specifically said satire to to cope with the corona situation saying that humour and satire gives people a sense of agency which they're going to need through the, the, the months ahead but also propagates misinformation but I mean we could probably write a conversation piece about it, but I'd feel a little bit... I don't want to write any it. conversation pieces about about okay. this, no. I don't think. No. It just feels like, well, I think everything's... What doth it profit a man? Yeah, I think I think better me- people than me can say those things, probably. Yeah, well, we just said them anyway. So yeah. who, who's our next guest going to be, Jo? Uh, it's Professor Sharon Lockyer mm-hmm. from the Centre for Comedy Studies at Brunel University. In London, yeah. yeah. It is in London, and, yeah. um, and we've already spoken to her, so we know we that it's going to be a fantastic yeah. interview. You're yeah. going to really enjoy that. And we'll be talking about satire and social justice. Yeah. And also offence. Where do you draw the line? Where do you cross the line? How is the line even constructed? Empirical paradigm. Yeah, offence. But for now... I hope there's no 18th century people trying to have sex near that (laughs) offence. No, trying to propagate that offence. So, yeah, thanks very much, listeners. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, please do let us know. Even if you're just aware of it, please do let us know. You can do if socials. it's changed your life, though, definitely let us know. Yeah, this that's, is what we're, that's what we're after. We're an impact yeah. case study writing up season, so yeah. uh, if it has made a change to the way you think or behave, please do give us a yell. How can they do that? Uh, a Twitter. How do they do that? At Satire No More on Twitter, mm-hmm. can they? Individually, at Ele- Elemental Adam and at or underscore JS. And if yeah. they've encountered this episode of the podcast completely without context and they want to listen to more episodes but they don't know where... They could do that. Probably the same place they encountered it. <laughs> but if they want to... Okay. Say, for example, if they found it on SoundCloud, but they're looking for a more convenient platform. Go to Spotify. Yeah, yeah or go Anchor. To, yeah, or any of the other Overcast, ones. Yeah. Castro. Visit our website by Googling words Satire Death Burst Legacies and you will see a full list of the many platforms in which variants... And all of our episodes, episodes you'll yeah. see on there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think without further ado, it's time to say goodbye. Yes, goodbye. For, for this month. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. Um, yeah. Goodbye, listeners. Stay safe. Do wash your hands, but mainly just think on.
Yeah, sit up. Look smart. And eat my satire. That's the one. Eat my satire. Bye. Bye.